This afternoon we'll be considering together with the Lord's help 2 Corinthians chapter 7 and verse 1. Having therefore these promises, dearly beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. It is the common experience of every believer in every part of the world and in every age to find struggle in their Christian life, to be engaged in a weary battle, uh, to want one thing and to want it sincerely and earnestly, and yet to do another. This is captured, of course, in the example of the Apostle Paul himself in Romans 7, verses 14 and following, which describes the believer's experience, how that which he would do, he didn't do, and what he would not do, that is what he did. And he delighted in the law after the inward man, and yet he found another law within his members, the law of sin, of indwelling sin uh, within him. And so he was engaged in war and battle. Battle is weary, and there is struggle that is involved with it. And for the believer, that is impossible to escape. Impossible for many reasons, but not least of which, because as long as they're in this world, sin is still present. And as long as sin is present, then that gracious and godly work that God has done in the soul will be set at odds with, with sin. So there's this struggle. And the answer for, for some is to to find better tactics. And so people will run to all sorts of things. They'll, they'll run to the self-help gurus. Uh, they'll run to, you know, the people who are delivering formulas for practical improvement. They'll go back to the ancients and the ancient philosophers to be furnished with a better arsenal or uh, look to this or that similar type of, of source for tactics, something that will improve the game, that will advance the battle, that will somehow fill a hole that's missing uh, within their own understanding of the Christian life. Now, uh, without acknowledging in any way some of the sources that I, I just mentioned, it's not entirely inappropriate to say, to do inventory and to say, are there tactics, if I can use that word, that we are missing. That's not inappropriate. We are growing in our understanding of what it means to engage in spiritual warfare, to walk in communion with Christ, to mortify sin, and so on. And so there are depths that need to be plummeted there. But the reason I raise it is this, because the answer for so many is to find better tactics. When in fact, often what is needed is to find a better supply chain. Now you think in terms of military, they're on, the, they're on the front lines and what's happening there is important, but it's absolutely essential that the supply lines that run from way back wherever it's safe to the front line themselves be protected. And if the enemy can cut off the supply chain, then they'll be left like a dead duck in water on the, on the front line. And it's true for the believer, understanding the supply chain, if you will, the, the lines of supply 
the way in which the Lord imparts strength and help and grace to his people is essential for understanding what it means to pursue holiness. So here we find ourselves this afternoon in the middle of a series on the biblical doctrine of promises. And we've covered a lot of ground. We had several sermons that were introductory, helping orient us in terms of what the promises are, how they're grounded, what the relationship to Christ is, how the exercise of faith relates to them, and a whole bunch of other things. And then in the last sermon, we turned kind of the the hinge to then the main point of this series, which is how is it that we use these promises? And so we looked last time at the use of promises in the context of affliction. And this afternoon, we turn to this theme of promises and perfecting holiness. So it's the use of promises in relationship to growth in godliness. And we're going to actually cover this under a few sermons. This morning is somewhat, introdu- or this afternoon rather, is somewhat uh, laying out the, the terrain for us to get the conceptual model, the truths clear in our head. We'll go on, if God spares us, to think about how to use this, this, the promises in the midst of temptation, how to use the promises in reference to mortification and so on. But this, this afternoon, promises and perfecting holiness, starting more generally. And what we're doing is we're looking at one text. I'm not going to even preach the whole text, all of verse 1. Um, but we're looking at one text to lay down the doctrine or principle. And I say that to say this, what we see in this passage and learn from it, you should be able to get up from your pew, go back to your homes, open your Bibles, and apply the same thing to many, 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 many more passages. So the, the truths that we see uh, given to us in Second Corinthians 7, 1, the relationship of promise to perfecting holiness can be applied in innumerable numbers of other passages, some of which I'll make reference to throughout the course of the sermon. So two, two things this afternoon, just two things. First of all, promises for holiness. So the emphasis here is falling on promises, promises for holiness. So if you look at the, look at the text, verse 1, having therefore these promises, dearly beloved, That language, mind you, dearly beloved, is not common in Paul's epistles. I think it's used a half dozen times in the New Testament. He's speaking in a way that is very endearing. He's engaging them in an affectionate manner. He's coming alongside them uh, to give help with regards to this pursuit of godliness. And so he says, having therefore these promises. So the question, the children know this, when you come, especially at the beginning of a chapter, And it has the word therefore. You ask yourself, what is the therefore, therefore? And that sends you back to the previous chapter, right? Our chapter divisions so often um, break up things that have to be held together, at least uh, in our minds. It takes us back to 2 Corinthians 6, verses 14 to 18. Because in that section, the second half of the previous chapter, uh, we are given by the Lord six promises. So a half dozen promises that are stacked up one after another. And Paul wants us to see those promises in preparation for the command 
that follows in chapter 7, verse 1. And so look back at the text. Six promises. Uh, The first is found in verse 16. For ye are the temple of the living God. In other words, the believer belongs to God. God has taken possession of the believer's whole person. He's taken possession of it for himself. And therefore, as Paul tells us elsewhere, the believer is to reckon themselves dead unto sin. Reckon themselves dead unto sin. That is to acknowledge it, consider it, affirm it, that this is a living reality, that we are dead to sin, that the dominion of sin and power of sin has been broken through our union with the Lord Jesus Christ. And so when he says, for ye are the temple of the living God, God's taken possession of his people, that means their bodies belong to Christ. If you're a believer, your body is not your property. We refer to my body, my hands, my eyes, my feet, and so on. Fair enough. But if you're a believer, these are Christ's hands, Christ's eyes, Christ's feet. All the faculties of body and soul belong to him. We are the temple of the living God. And what flows from that? Secondly, you see, as God hath said, I will dwell in them and walk in them. We're going to begin to uh, kind of perk up our ears at those two words, I will. As we're reading through the scriptures, God is speaking and says, I will. The believer takes very special interest in that. He will what? What is it that he has sworn and promised to do? Because whatever follows, I will, in the mouth of God, will certainly happen. It's a promise. And so he says, I will dwell in them and walk in them. That is, the believer is indwelt by the Holy Spirit. Now, this is something that was foretold in, in, in the Old Testament, in Ezekiel 36, you know the passage well where uh, the Lord is speaking to his people and giving them all sorts of, of promises. You know, it opens in verse 25, Then will I sprinkle clean water upon you. You shall be clean from your filthiness, from your idols. A new heart will I give you. You know, take out the heart of stone, give a heart of flesh. We're all familiar with that. But I want you to keep reading. Because you come to verse 27 and it says, And I will put my spirit within you. So there's the promise. And this is what Paul is building upon. And notice what is connected with it. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. And ye shall keep my judgments and do them. So here's the Lord. He's saying, I'm going to give you my spirit. I promise it. And I promise that I myself will cause you to walk in my statutes and to keep and to do my judgment. So you come back to 2 Corinthians 6. And this is what's being, this is what we're being told. I will dwell in them and walk in them. The Lord is promising that he will give the Holy Spirit and that that spirit indwelling his people will in fact enable them to obey. 
and to do God's holy will. Now, that's clear even from the passage because this this comes right after what we read in verses uh, 14 to 16, where he's saying you can't be unequally yoked, no fellowship with righteousness and unrighteousness, light and darkness, Christ and Belial, you know, those who believe with the infidel, temple of God with idols. He's saying these are incompatible. These, these are utterly incompatible. These two things, water and oil, cannot be brought together. Well, what are, the what are some of the implications of this? If you go back to 1 Corinthians 6, where he's dealing with the same theme, he's speaking about our union with Christ and the Lord indwelling us as a part of that uh, union and our members belonging to the Lord Jesus Christ, our bodies belonging to the Lord Jesus Christ. He says in verse 15, Know ye not that your bodies are the members of Christ? And then listen to these words. They're shocking. They're, they're, they're hard for us to even hear. Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them the members of a harlot? God forbid. What is he saying? He's saying your body's not yours, it's Christ's. And when a believer, for example, commits these wicked, heinous, hell-deserving, sexually immoral sins of engaging, for example, in sexual union with a harlot, they are actually bringing Christ with them into union, as it were, with a harlot. He says in the next verse, you know what? Know ye not that he which is joined to a harlot is one body? For two, he said, shall be made one flesh. Right? This is utterly shocking. And it should be. It's intended to be. It's saying, listen, the Lord is the one. We are the temple of the Lord. We belong to him. And we are indwelt by him. And he will indwell us and walk with us. So there's, you know, the implications are what I just read in 1 Corinthians 6. But the promise is here, I will indwell. And I will walk in them. The Lord is saying, I'm going to give you power from the Holy Ghost that will enable you to, in fact, walk in the ways of the Lord and not walk in these ways that are so spiritually revolting and so incompatible with a profession of faith in Jesus Christ. Think of Romans chapter 8, where it says in verse 9, but ye are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If so be that the Spirit of God dwell in you. Now, if any man have not the Spirit of Christ, he is none of his. Verse 11. But if the Spirit of him that raised up Jesus from the dead dwell in you, he that raised up Christ from the dead shall also quicken your mortal bodies by his Spirit that dwelleth in you. So he's saying you have a promise that with this indwelling Spirit, the Lord is going to enliven and invigorate and empower to live unto the Lord. He's promised to do it. Third promise, back to 2 Corinthians 6. He says, I will be their God and they shall be my people. Well, even the children here know, boom, 
This is the language of the covenant that we find all the way from the book of Genesis through the book of Revelation. We find it everywhere, right? It's the covenant of grace in a nutshell. I will be their God. They shall be my people. And we heard in a previous sermon that all of the promises are grounded in the covenant of grace. And they're all grounded in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so here is the Lord saying, this covenant that I've made, the, the, the pledges that I've made, they will be kept. I will be your God and you will be my people. And so you go to places like Deuteronomy chapter 10, that amazing passage from verse 12 to the end. And you see this injunction, right? Using the covenant sign, it says, circumcise therefore the foreskin of your heart and be no more stiff-necked. So circumcise therefore the foreskin of your heart. This is a command. Now we're, we're, we're learning that the, the, the outward external sign is related to an internal spiritual reality. That internal spiritual reality brings obligations and duties upon us. We need our hearts circumcised. But the Lord never gives us an injunction without giving us the promise to sustain us. And so you go, uh, for example, uh, to, to, to chapter 30 of Deuteronomy in verse 6. And the Lord thy God will circumcise thine heart and the heart of thy seed to love the Lord thy God with all thine heart and with all thy soul. You see the same thing in Jeremiah 4, 4. Right here is the Lord saying, circumcise your heart. And then he's saying, I will circumcise your heart. I will be a God unto you. You will be my people. All of these promises that are yea and amen in Christ Jesus, secured in the covenant of grace, are to be found in him. Our strength, our supply is derived from the Lord himself. Next promise. He goes on to say in verse 17, I will, there's our word, our, our language, I will receive you. So here's the, the thing that so often the Lord's people tremble at, not being received, right? There's this fear that our sin, our shortcomings, our repeated failures, and, some, or, and so on are somehow going to dislodge us, to cut us off from the Lord. Now, if a person professes and doesn't have real faith or grace, then, of course, they could be. But in the, in the instance of a believer, that's not possible. He's saying, I will receive you. So he's assuring his people. In other words, it's the Lord coming behind the call that says, come, come unto me. Let us reason together. Though your sins be as scarlet, I'll make them white as snow. Come unto me, all ye who labor, and I, I will give you rest, and so on. It's behind this. Come to the waters, the living waters, and you'll never thirst again. The Lord's giving us a promise. I'll receive you. If you come, your spiritual parched soul will be watered. That you will be received by me. That the Lord will never leave or forsake his people. So there's this promise, I'll receive you. The fifth one, and will be a father unto you. So a promise that he'll be a father. That means, as we sing in Psalm 130, that as a father, he'll pity us as those who are made of dust. That as a father, there will be 
sympathy and love. As a father, there will be care that for his own namesake, as father, he will bless his people and he will bless them still. He's saying, I will be, I will be a father with all of those blessings and more flowing from it. The sixth promise is, and ye shall be my sons and daughters, saith the Lord God Almighty. So here the privileges of adoption brought into uh, the, the, uh, the, the, the um, arena, the orbit of God's own household. To be a son or daughter of, of the living God is to be protected by the Lord himself. He defends his people. He's the one who is their, their protection. He's the one who provides all that is lacking spiritually as well as physically, but a lacking all, all that is lacking spiritually. The, the father will supply to his children. He'll give sufficient grace. He'll give strength and everything else that flows from that. He will, as a father, ensure that as sons and daughters, you will be disciplined. He won't allow you to be a spiritual train wreck. The, the, the apostates and others, yes, they destroy themselves. But the true sons and daughters of God, by no means, he hems them in, he promises, he swears to do so. He says, I will chasten you. I will bring the sting of the rod. I will train you. I will bring forth the peaceable fruits of, of righteousness. He's saying, I am the one who, who will provide that inheritance which is secured in heaven. It's, what, it's a privilege of being a son or daughter of the living God. All of these things, all that we've mentioned, the, these, these six promises, which we've considered super briefly and could be unpacked at length, they all furnish us with resources, spiritual resources. God says, take me at my word. Receive my word by faith. Count on it. Bank on it. Go out and act upon what I have sworn to be and do and provide. The Lord is supplying us with strength. Now, this, of course, is only applicable, as I've noted, to the believer. If you're an unconverted person, you are incapable of the pursuits of holiness. You're incapable, and it would be utterly foolhardy to, to listen to, to preaching that applies to the believer about their growth in grace when you have no grace, no saving grace. Right? Where do you need to begin? You need to begin with a different set of promises. You need to begin with those gospel promises that we've spoken of in previous sermons of all that the Lord sets forth in showing the willingness and ability and power uh, to receive sinners who come unto him. Those promises are the promises to which I would direct you and you need to lay hold of and to come to the Lord by and through them. You need to begin there. And so it's, it's not applicable to those who are outside of the Lord Jesus Christ. But to the believer, you see how Paul wants us to understand, and God, the Lord inspiring Paul, to see the use of the promises. Not just the use of precepts. Here's what you're to do. Not just the use of principles, which kind of clarify uh, the standard that we're given. 
not just exhortations and commands, which urge us to do them, but we need promises as well. And we need to be able to use those promises in the pursuit of genuine holiness. Laying hold on the promises is equivalent to leaning upon the Lord by faith. Right? Depending on the promises is equivalent to drawing on the Lord's own strength. So we often find ourselves, as I said in the introduction, you find yourselves low. You find yourself low, beaten, battered in, in the struggles against sin. And that, that's a good thing. It's a good thing to be made low. But it's even made better if in that spiritual poverty we are brought to Christ in the promises. Because in being brought to Christ in the promises, we are then brought high. We are raised up, quickened, strengthened, enlivened by his, his grace. So in other words, don't think merely in terms of, well, I have a battle against fill-in-the-blank sin. So I'm, I'm, I'm battling against bitterness. I'm battling against greed or discontentment or lust or anger or whatever it is. Don't think merely in terms of battling against those sins, which is true, but not, not all that's true. You need to think in terms of going deeper, namely in addressing unbelief. There is a fight for faith that needs to be recognized. Not just the battle against a specific sin or several, but the fight for faith. The battle against unbelief to be able to lay hold of and to employ the promises in the particular sins that we are, are confronting. And so first point is that there are promises for holiness. As I said, this can be duplicated everywhere in Scripture. All of the commands with regards to sanctification have multiple attending promises associated with them. The Lord says, do this, but then the Lord comes behind it and promises to enable us to do that, that he indeed will undertake for us brings us, secondly, to perfecting holiness. Perfecting holiness. Let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. So we go from promises for holiness to perfecting holiness. Two injunctions, cleanse and perfecting. Right? There's a command here. Let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit. And so what we're, what we're beginning to do now is to recognize that there's, there's a command and therefore a duty. And that that needs to be connected, not disconnected, to the promises. So the command and duty stands, right? We don't believe that the promises produce passivity. As I've made clear in a previous sermon, we deny sanctification by faith alone. We deny 
conflating justification and sanctification, that the way in which we grow in godliness is merely by remembering that we're justified. We deny the antinomian tenets and higher life movement and all the other uh, expressions of that. The Lord says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. Both of those things have to be held together. We are called to be engaged in arduous labor. And the Lord promises that he is the one who will work his grace in us, through us, by us, for his own glory. That he will actually bring the work about by the ministry of his Holy Spirit. That leaves us in dependence. We are dependent upon the Lord. But we are not passive uh, we are not left, as it were, to just let go and let God, as one foolish person has put it. The Lord's strength is to be employed in our pursuits. And so he says, cleanse, let us cleanse ourselves, right? What needs to be cleansed? The filth of sin. Children, think of those pictures. You know, you go to West Virginia, the state's divided in two, really. The northern part of the state is farming community. The lower part of the state is coal country, coal mines. And you've seen pictures, you know, of these men who are working all day in the coal mines and they come out and they're covered in coal dust, right, from head to foot. And you can't s see them, right? You can't see them. They're, 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 their body's covered in, that, in the, uh, the coal dust. Right? There's a picture where we're defiled. And so we need to be cleansed. We need to be dying unto sin and living unto righteousness. He says, cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of this flesh and spirit. This, this does not involve incidental, occasional um, reflection. This isn't something that you can go about in a haphazard manner, in a light manner, in a superficial manner. I mean, this is not something that that the Christian just adds as a little piece of their life. This is huge. This is significant. You know, am I spending enough time, thought, effort, exertion on these things? No, you are not. Not by a long shot. You're not spending the time and exertion necessary to these things. He says, cleansing ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, internally and externally, seen and unseen, public and private, our thoughts, our minds, as a man thinks in his heart, so is he, Solomon tells us in Proverbs. You know, Paul says in, in Philippians 4, think on these things. Or he speaks in Romans 12 of the renewing of our minds bringing every thought captive, and so on. The mind is defiled. There's filthiness there that needs to be cleansed. Our mouth is defiled as well. How often he speaks of this in Ephesians 5, verses 3 and 4. Uh, verse 4, he says, Neither filthiness nor foolish talking nor jesting, which are not convenient or suitable, but rather giving of thanks. Right? Our, our tongues need to be bridled. Our attitudes, our pride, our haughtiness, or our critical spirit find it very easy to find fault with everybody else 
and all the negativities that are to be seen in them. That's filth. Part of the filth of the flesh and spirit, as well as, of course, our actions and so on. So where does this bring us? He's saying, having these promises, let us cleanse ourselves, perfecting holiness. Having these promises, we're to do so. In other words, we're to employ them in the pursuits that God calls us to. In 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 23, And the very God of peace sanctify you wholly. And I pray, God, your whole spirit and soul and body be preserved blameless unto the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Faithful is he that calleth you, who also will do it. Here the Lord is saying, I will do it. I'll sanctify your whole spirit, soul, and body. I, I will preserve it blameless. He's faithful. He will do it. The believer is brought into union with the Lord Jesus Christ. The believer says, well, I, I have so many things I need. I need more grace. I need more fruit. I need more virtues. I need more obedience and so on. True enough, you do. And yet the Lord says that he has promised it and he will provide it. He's promised to provide it. Where, where, do, where, does the, where do those graces come from? Christ, by the Spirit. Where's the fruit come from? It's the fruit of the Holy Spirit. Where do all these virtues come from? In obedience through the ministry of the Holy Spirit. They're gifts that come from the Lord Jesus Christ himself. It's true. Faith. Faith is a, fun, a foundational grace. And yet the Lord tells us the faith is gift of God. Philippians 1 verse 29, we see the same. Again, in, in, in Hebrews 12, the Lord is the author and finisher of our faith. He's the beginner and the finisher. And so we're to go to Christ based on the promises that he'll provide and to receive from him the increase of faith. Why do we pray so often using the words from the Gospels? I believe, help thou mine unbelief. We're asking the Lord who has promised and will provide to increase our faith as the disciples did. And guess what? The Lord does it. When we plead as promise, we receive it by faith and plead it by faith and act upon it by faith. The Lord delivers. He increases the faith of his people. I love, love, love the story of the Syrophoenician woman. Rutherford has a whole book on it, Trial and Triumph of Faith. Fantastic. But that, that account in the Gospels of the Syrophoenician woman. What an example. She had a sense of need that was indomitable. Unconquerable. A sense of need that would not take no for an answer. And she comes in faith to the, the Lord, to Christ, to receive the provision of that need. She had good grounds to do so because the Bible gives us promises that Christ will supply. And so she goes to Christ. 
And the Lord draws out her faith, right? The, the rebuffing that comes. You know, I'm called to the, last, the, to the lost tribes of Israel. You know, it's not suitable to give the bread to the dogs and so on and so forth. He draws out her faith. She continues to plead in faith. She receives exactly what she sought, despite the hurdles that were initially presented to her. The Lord delivers. He gives faith. He gives hope. Hope nourishes faith. Confident expectation nourishes uh, our, our faith. You think of Psalm 22, which we sing in verse 9. But thou art he that took me out of the womb. Thou didst make me hope when I was upon my mother's breasts. He's saying, I've, the Lord himself is the one who's given hope. From infancy, David is saying, I've been led to have confident expectation in who God is and what he'll do from my youth. You think of Colossians 1, right? Christ in us, the hope of glory. And so we, we need the increase of, of hope. The Lord is himself the one who's promised to supply it. We go, Lord, increase, give us hope, give us. And what do we do? We look obviously, through the window of the promise to the promiser. And as we do so, we behold God's power. That strengthens hope. And we behold God's wisdom. He is so wise in ordering all of our affairs. That strengthens our hope. His truth and veracity, that it remains fixed in the heavens. That strengthens our hope. His goodness, that he is good and does good. That strengthens our hope as well. What do we find as we're pleading? The Lord is providing. And as we're reflecting and turning our gaze heavenward, the Lord is increasing hope. And so you find yourself in the wreckage, right? You've been whooped, licked, beat by a particular temptation. The temptation is for hope to die out. I think this is it for me. And the Lord comes and he says, I will provide hope. I'll give confident expectation that will fuel your faith. When you think of obedience, you know, one of the reasons I pointed you to uh, Ezekiel 36 is because of this point of obedience. I will put my spirit in them and cause them to walk in my ways and judgments and do them. The Lord is saying, I will provide my spirit and the fruit of obedience. I will do it. You have the same thing lots of places. The Lord promises that he's predestined his people in order that they might be conformed to the likeness of his son. Romans 8 verse 29 and others. You can go to Romans 6. Those opening 11 verses are, are talking about the believer's union with Christ and the consequences that he is free from the dominion, the domination of sin. That he is free to obey in the Lord. Right? These are wonderful things. You think of repentance. So often associate with faith. It's the same there. Repentance is, is, is something the Lord gives and is able to give. Acts 5 verse 31. Him hath God exalted with his right hand to be a prince and a savior. To what end? For to give repentance to Israel 
and forgiveness of sins. Christ, the exalted Christ, giving repentance. Or Acts chapter 11, verse 18. When they heard these things, they held their peace and glorified God, saying, Then hath God also to the Gentiles granted repentance unto life. We need repentance. We need godly sorrow for sin that, that leads to repentance. We can go to the Lord and plead, Lord, turn me that I might be turned, to use the language of Jeremiah. Repentance is turning from sin as unto the Lord. And so we're pleading, Lord, turn me that I might be turned. On and on and on it goes. The perfecting of holiness fueled by promises. Now we read, coming close to the end, but we read from our Old Testament reading in Hosea 14. This is a passage I've come back to countless times. As many of you have, I'm sure. What a passage. Hosea chapter 14. So there's, there's, you notice the mix that we're seeing described in 2 Corinthians 7, 1 is found woven throughout this whole chapter, right? There's, there's injunction, commandment, duty, obligation, return unto the Lord. That's repentance. Return unto the Lord thy God. Why? For thou hast fallen in thine iniquity. But we're given both instructions and promises to supply help. So he says, take, take words with you. Well, I'll give you the words. The words are, take away all iniquity and receive us graciously. So we will render the calves of our lips. Asher shall not save us, Lord. We will not ride upon horses. In all these other things we've trusted in, we're forsaking those and turning from them as unto you. But what I want you to see is verse 4 and following, those two words I pointed out earlier, in the mouth of God, I will. So it's a call to the reviving and recovering and repenting and returning of God's people. And the Lord supplies phenomenal promises. I will heal their backsliding. I will love them freely. Mine anger is turned away. I will be as the dew unto Israel. He shall grow as the lily. His branches shall spread. His beauty shall be as the olive tree. His smell is Lebanon. They that dwell under his shadow shall return. So verse 1, O Israel, return unto the Lord. He says, they shall return in that verse, in this verse, 7. They shall revive as the corn, grow as the vine. Their scent shall be as Lebanon. And so on. This is what the Lord is saying he will be and do for his people. Do you see how the two things are held together? So that the believer finding themselves in circumstances that are requiring a return, a repentance, are able to go to the Lord in their turning, in their repenting and turning from sin unto the Lord. They are able to put in their mouths his own word of promise, and plead them in prayer. Lord, thou hast said that thou will, be, that thou will heal my backsliding. Thou hast said thou will love me freely. Thou hast promised to be the dew unto Israel, to make me grow as the lily, and so on. Do you see what's happening here? The Lord is furnishing his people. This is the supply line to the front line. 
The Lord is supplying his people with strength and blessing, and they're able in faith and confidence to bank on the word of God and to venture out in obedience to his word in faith and dependence upon Christ by his spirit and watch the Lord deliver. He does what he says. And lo and behold, the Lord comes just like dew. And he waters that parched, dry, cracked, arid soul. And it begins to spring up. And it's reviving. And the grass is becoming, is flourishing. And the wheat comes to bud. And there's the fruit of the Spirit that are being born in a particular area. And it's the Lord. And it's all of grace. And it's all to his glory. The Lord says, depend upon me. It's not as if you're told, go out and do it yourself. Nor are you told, don't go out and do it. You're told, go out and do it in the strength of Christ's grace and the help of his Holy Spirit, depending upon the promises that have been given to us. In other words, it's not just what we bring to the table in the pursuits of holiness. It's what God brings to the table. It's what God brings in his abundant grace. God gives us grace to obey him in our holy, arduous, earnest, persevering pursuits. God gives grace. And then wonder of wonders, he abundantly rewards that grace and obedience all to his own glory and honor and praise. Is it any wonder that on the last day, well, it's no wonder that on the last day that the Lord gives his people a crown or crowns. That doesn't surprise us knowing the character of God, his benevolence, his graciousness, his goodness. In one sense, it should shock us. He's rewarding his people how so? He supplied the grace for them to do what's being rewarded. But isn't that why the crown is cast at the feet of the lamb? The imagery there is not just that the Lord gives the crown and then they cast the crown at the feet of the Lord once at the inception, if you will. But that eternity is spent casting the crown before the lamb. The Lord gives, puts the crown on our head, we put it at his feet. He puts it on our head, we put it at his feet. Right? This picture of magnifying the glory of God's grace. Here we begin, at least at the, the beginning, if you will, to begin to put to the pieces together of how God intends for us to use the promises, in this case, within the arena of the pursuits of holiness or the perfecting of holiness. May the Lord enable us to employ those promises by faith to his glory. Let's stand for prayer. Lord, our God in heaven, we are a mass of dust and sin. We have been created from the dust and we would have destroyed ourselves by sin. 
We see our weakness, our brokenness, our frailty, our emptiness. We see it, O oh Lord, up close and personal. O oh Lord, give us grace to see Thee. Give us grace to see Christ. Give us grace, O oh Lord, to see the promises, to see those pledges of all that Thou wouldst be and do for a believing people. And enable us, O oh Lord, to exercise faith in those promises, to take thee at thy word, and to go forth into the battle in thine own strength, and dependence upon thy grace, and to behold the glory of God through the ministry of the Spirit, delivering all that has been pledged to us. O oh Lord, increase our faith. We ask for Jesus' sake. Amen.